Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. The Queen Yushla to Falcherov from the Bram Stoker Festival in Dublin in association with Dublin City Council, RT Culture, the Clontarf Transylvania Bilateral Tourist Council, and Van Helsing Industries. Welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, words from Ireland, and vampires. <laughs> Will you please welcome to the stage? She is the undoubted railt in our midst today. She's from Ortiz Bjorregan. She is the definition of a Renaissance woman. Will you please give a boo bus to Shuni Gwyn. And ladies and gentlemen, the Count himself. He is the best-selling author. I think it says best-selling, but it could say best-smelling. I'm not sure. I'll just go with best-smelling, just in case. He smells really good. He's the best-smelling author of Mother Folklore and Crack Baby. The one, the only, Derek O'Shea! Thank you all so much for coming today. And it was very mucky this morning. I thought, no one's going to come along. But you have, so thank you so much. Can we get a vibe check? Is anybody here under mm. the age of 17? Okay, right, lads. Out, out. We can't fucking curse. Okay? So just, there, okay. Keep a lid on it, Derek. Can't take you anywhere. No, it's true. So, um, it's just, yeah, I've, thank you so much to Nisha and everyone in the in Bram Stoker Festival for bringing Mother Folklore back to life for one spooky afternoon. And what could be better than talking about Dracula itself, but not just Dracula itself, but also the translation of Dracula by Sean Corrine, which came out in 1933. To start with, we're going to talk about Dracula and it's the book itself and the Irishness in it, because it isn't actually set in Ireland, but... It's not? Yeah. <laughs> Bram Stoker, a few years before Dracula, he wrote a book called The Snake's Pass, which was set in Ireland and dealt with uh, St. Patrick removing the snakes, but one big evil snake being left. It's not very widely known. But I think Stoker probably... I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> a big snaky snake. But I guess at some point he realised it might be a bit more commercial to set up in London. 
Yeah, and the translation is really interesting. I hadn't actually read the translation until recently. I feel bad saying that because I did it in college and it was one of those, I'll just flick through this. But when I read it, the translation is incredible. The Irish in it is just outstanding. So that was a real eye-opener for me that the translation into Irish was possibly nearly better than the English original. Mm-hmm. I know. I mean, it's great. It is, it's good. Like there, And we'll get into it, but there's kind of... What O'Curian does in it, and it's interesting, and I'm looking forward to discussing it, is, is where he takes absolutely massive liberties with the English language version. He kind of makes up for it by just having this poetic and flowery approach to the prose in, in, in the Irish version. Yeah, really and he's, he's very confident in his Irish translation in that he was obviously a native speaker from, from Port Lariga, from Waterford, but that he wasn't afraid to change much of the original text to suit the readers that he thought would be reading it, Irish speakers who would understand maybe other literary touch points rather than the ones that were in the English book. Mm. Yeah, but we will get into that, but first... First, we talk a little about Stoker's Dublin. Why not? Yeah, we are in Stokers, Dublin. We are indeed. Yeah. Bram Stoker was, of course, a dub, and we are inordinately proud of that. Mm. There's a whole shagging festival named after him. That's, <laughs> he's, a, he's a rat it. Uh, yeah, so look, he was incredibly, I mean, I suppose to say proud of being an Irishman or proud of being a Dubliner would be just, I mean, it would go without saying. He was Irish. He identified as Irish, and kind of more so than some of his contemporaries who hit the English literary scene in a big way as well. He would have been a contemporary of Wilde. Mm. In fact, his wife, Florence Stoker, was Wilde's ex-girlfriend. Um, so, you know, just like... Oh, the way around, no? Huh? Was it the other way around? No. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Flo Stoker was uh, Wilde's ex. One of his beards. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Stoker's double 90210. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they just couldn't afford to write in new characters. Uh, uh, yeah, so, and Stoker was, he reluctantly left Ireland. He only left Ireland because Stoker's bread and butter, he wasn't known as an author. He was a theatre manager mm. and a really, really good one. And uh, he fell in with the, the impresario, the famous impresario, Sir Henry Irving. And Irving convinced him to move to London because, like, the theatre scene in Dublin was shit. Uh, you've got Smock Alley. Mm. And that's it. Mm. So if you want to grow within the theatre scene, London was the place to be. So he went over and he managed various theatres in London, had a good time, died riddled with syphilis. Um, <laughs> he had a real good time. Riddled. <laughs> Too much of a good time. <laughs> uh, and then along the way, wrote a book, had written, had written The Snake's Pass, had written a few short stories and the likes. But yeah, with Dracula, just absolutely hit the big time. A, a, a massively brilliant pop culture horror novel Mm. that absolutely smashed it. It was mm. great. So, mm. I, I mean, how many, just get a show of hands, how many people have read Dracula? Berlin or Gaelga, it doesn't matter. I suppose it haven't. Like, have you at least seen the Francis Ford Coppola film? <laughs> how many of you have seen a Dracula film? Yeah, it's more like it. Okay. There's still at least one hand out there going like, oh shit, I thought this was... <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the I thought this room. was a talk on art and design. I am... Um, <laughs> Too embarrassed, I'm not getting out of my seat now. And how many of you have seen a puppet uh, based on Dracula who teaches children how to count? <laughs> yeah, that's more like it. One, two, three, ha, ha, ha! It's tough. Nice so. <laughs> I wish they were all that easy, sorry. <laughs> that wasn't rehearsed. That was a great setup. <laughs> we didn't even rehearse that. <laughs> I know, we're just like, God, it's a, I guess, great to be back, great to be back doing podcasts. Yeah. Absolutely loving it. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, but so, 
in the early days of the Free State uh, in 1922, when you just had a revolution, you just had awards of big mandate to make big sweeping decisions, not to do things by halves, to do huge, huge projects like electrifying Ireland, creating a new Gaeltucht, and then just basically deciding to create, uh, create an indigenous publishing Irish language scene. The, the malaise or kind of cynicism that has accompanied some Irish language policy, attitude policy, mm. hadn't set in yet. This People hadn't, weren't talking yet about why it's taught or why, why little Johnny is so good at all his other subjects. Why isn't he learning Irish? There must be something wrong with the language. And those, those attitudes hadn't kicked in yet. He hadn't um, gotten to the point where it was like, you'd be better off learning Mandarin. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's 1933. You're better off learning German. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so, so in the in the in the mid 20s, there was a Angoom supported the the translation of some well-known hit novels into the Irish language. The Berne Convention of for, for copyrights was in were in flux because of it being a new state. And at this point, there was a loophole where if a book had not yet been translated into Irish and it was been published for ten years, you didn't have to pay the all their royalties. Cha-ching. Yeah. <laughs> we spent we spent a we spent about I, I will get, let you I lift the, the 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 curtain a little bit, let you see behind the candelabra here. Um, we've spent the last week planning this podcast and talking to each other about what we're going to talk about. And we one of the key things we wanted to do is why would they choose Dracula mm. to translate into Irish? Of all the classic novels I could have chosen, why choose Dracula? Well, because it's a fucking smashing book. It's brilliant. Mm. It's really, really great. Like it's a, it's an amazing book. It's well worth doing. Then it turns out, Derek does a bit more research. No, it turns out that they were just cheapskates <laughs> as a nation. So. Dracula had been published more than ten years. Was really popular, and we can translate it into Irish for nothing. Mm-hmm. Take that, Florence Stoker. <laughs> So there was a, they supported the um, Ernest Blythe was the Minister for Finance signing off on these on these budget decisions and he was years later he'd be managing the Abbey Theatre and when in that role he insisted he wanted to support hits that people would go to see more than cutting edge edgy artistic things that would 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 find an audience after time he wanted hits now and in the Shannad he made decisions saying that rather than you know supporting indigenous Irish kind of singer songwriters and just translate hits like Run Rabbit Run into Irish and that, that that'd be good and so basically he was the spiritual ancestor of T.G. Lurgan <laughs> yes yes you, see, you could definitely say that but that doesn't require any we more want analysis hits and we want them now yeah so Hey kids, you could write a song, or we could do Wagon Wheel Os Gwelga. Who's with me? So, he was in the 1920s, uh, Ryder Haggard's novel, She Who Must Be Obeyed, uh, a well known Conrad novel with the one with the problematic name, uh, was also translated. Big adventure stories were being translated. And in 1928, he, um, he asked Sean O'Currian, who'd won a prize uh, for some translation work, what novel from a selection of uh, freely available texts, just, just over 10 years old, would he like to translate? And he said, yes, Dracula, yes, let me have it. Yeah, and he was a, he was a teacher originally, but I think his heart was in translation. You can see there's letters forward and back available from Ungoom to Sean O'Currian where they're putting pressure on him to finish it quickly. And he's like, I'm not finishing quickly. I want to do it properly. And he takes great pains to translate it really well. But there was lots of issues that came up between Ungoom and Sean O'Currian where the policies maybe didn't suit Sean. So Sean wanted it to be printed only in the Clo Gaelach, where the Ungoom had moved on and they wanted to, to publish it in the Clo Robonach. At one point, Sean says that he's going to take his name off it and refuse to do any more work. If they, if they, I think he did that more than once in yeah, the entire process. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. 
Yeah, there was uh, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of rows. Good rows. Good goss. Those letters. What did he, What was it he called the um, the the Roman script? John Jowl Clotion. John Jowl. That <laughs> that the devilish. Damnable French. Roman script. Yes. People people have strong opinions on font even back then. He considered that to be the comic sans of you know. <laughs> and and obviously. There's, Ouch. I know. <laughs> But yeah, the, obviously the Kogelka is beautiful and he liked it. And, but then he, and he had chosen his word to translate the word vampire. He had chosen Sumora, which mm. is an old word for a bloodsucker, which doesn't have a V in it. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then if you look at some, some old texts, there's a kind of little joke that Sumora is in some very old texts, a word for a drunk, mm. as well as being a word for a vampire, which, is, which I thought was very interesting. But when it came to translating Van Helsing's name, the, the V stayed. Oh shit, what are we going to do with this one? <laughs> But that was one of the that, that was kind of one of the policy arguments that mm. Ocarin had with Angoom because Angoom were kind of like they're kind of like ready on the ground like the sport is now like we're not we're not going to translate somebody's name if they're known yeah. under that name yeah and actually Angoom seemed to come across as more contemporary than than Sean did because Sean wanted to stick to translating everything everything he wanted translated into Irish and the clo and all that whereas they were pushing if something's in English we keep it in English to to stay loyal to the text yeah. so there's the, there's an interesting kind of tension in translation there between who gets to make the decision in the end in the end it's Angoom and he's yeah. absolutely raging. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that you hit on sort of a compromise though because he translated almost all of the first names yeah leaving the surnames largely untouched so instead of Jonathan Harker we got Sean Sean Harker yeah. Sean O'Harker so he yeah. got his way on that one instead of Lucy Westenra we got Leisha Westenra yeah but it turns out Westenra is an Irish name anyway this from, is it it's from Monaghan yeah did you know that hands up if you're ever in the West End arms and Carrick McGrath <laughs> The shyest hand. I think it was hey, but I'm not sure. So, if you were there, you'd know. It's tempting to think that Stoker may have stuck in some some Irish names, some Irish surnames in, like Westmore, but which still sounds far enough. It does sound very Germanic, but no, the Baron of Baron Ross or something like mm. that. It was over whichever landed gentry family was in the Cavan Monaghan area. They were the Westerners, mm. and uh, yeah, they've they, like mad. Like so, the most fucking-looking name in the book mm. is the the only Irish one. Yeah. <laughs> Harker isn't, and Holmwood definitely isn't, and mm. Van Helsing is probably not. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure. Although I did know up. a Padraigine Van Helsing from Carcassonne, <laughs> but I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So there's some victories for Ocarin, some compromises, and a lot of wins for Ungoo mm, on sure. translation. Uh, interesting. So the, he's translated Lucy Westenra to Leisha mm, Westenra, yeah. which is you know, it's lovely, but he's left Van Helsing exactly mm. as it is yeah. with with that devil letter. <laughs> with the devil. Yeah. And the, I'm a big fan. Of, if anybody's never listened to the podcast, I'm a big fan of the letter V. <laughs> I'm a big fan of all of the letters going into the Irish language. All of them. Let's have all of them. Let's have the foreign ones as well. Give me a sharp as S and a U umlaut. I'll take them all. You know, one of those Norwegian O's, yeah. Uh, I, I, ooh, yes. <laughs> um, but, but like, I, so when I was... Just, I'm going to go on Chacron now, sorry. Tangentially speaking. When I was 18, I had a mobile phone and I let it get wet and the nine button stopped working. The number nine key. Okay. And if anybody remembers when before touchscreens, it's where the W, X, Y, and yeah. Z were. Mm. And you think you could get through texting without a W. You can't ask any questions. <laughs> <laughs> Who, what, where, why, when, they're gone. <laughs> How? Out the door. Not not happening. Not happening. So you're going through I was going through, I was going through runner because I couldn't afford a new phone. Mm-hmm. I was 18. 
a new phone or 20 pints. <laughs> uh, so I, I was taken all around about the world. So, so it's like, um, I'll see you there tonight, question mark? You should have changed to, to Gaelic. It wasn't Gaelic. Was I was sending us Gaelic and everything just to avoid using those letters. And it's hard to believe that that was actually the literary and language policy of the state until <laughs> the 1950s. Um, yeah. Mm. So, I mean, they finally found their nine key and now we can have Ws and yeah. Vs. And Ukraine has Ws and Vs. Not too many Zs. No. Not too many. But Ukraine also gave out about the amount of Hs and how ugly they looked on the page. Yeah. You like the little Yeah. Some of the interesting things actually in the text for me were you pointed out to me Darach was in an interesting paper by Sarah de Bruyne where they're talking about the intertextuality in the original. Mm. Um, Stoker writes a lot about uh, references to Shakespeare. And in O'Corrine's translation, he's taken out the Shakespeare and added in things like Brian Merriman's Gurtivani here. And it's interesting that maybe people wouldn't who were speaking Irish at the time maybe wouldn't get the reference to Shakespeare or would get a better reference to, to Brian Merriman's Courtevani here, which is unheard of now because yeah. everybody knows Shakespeare. But it's not to suggest that anyone had actually read either Courtevani or God, no. Shakespeare. No, but they'd pretend yeah, like we yeah, all so do. It's like, it's like putting in a reference to Ulysses <laughs> and everyone just sagely nods their heads and pretends that they've read Ulysses. Ah, oh, very clever. Did you see the reference to Ulysses? A lot of people have read the first chapter of Ulysses. That's where all the <laughs> famous quotes come from. I, I skipped to the end to read Raleigh's yeah. monologue at the end. That's, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, one of the other things that really strikes me about this verse of the book is it, it, some of the choices that O'Currine has made in his characters are brilliant. Bram Stoker wrote Dracula as a foreigner, a Transylvanian, so he wrote down broken English. Mm. Not so much broken English, he didn't have like V's on the page instead of W's. Like At no stage in the book does Dracula say, I want to suck your blood. <laughs> mm -hmm. But if you read it in the English version, some of his language is very archaic. Mm. It's out of date, even for 1890s when it was written. So there's one of the pieces, I have it saved, I'm going to have to, just sorry, forgive me, I'm going to look at my phone um, because I have the picture saved here somewhere. I'll say I have the picture it, saved here. I it's an ongoing issue in translation you. when you have a character who speaks kind of idiomatic or uh, broken English and how do you, do you translate that as, as broken new language or do you just do your thing and how do you replicate characters with accents? I know in, mm. when they're translating The Simpsons into Italian they make the, the Fat Tony uh, Sicilian. <laughs> <laughs> and in Germany they, they make Uder, uh, the exchange student, they make him Swiss. Yeah. 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 Do you know that in, um, in Germany mm -hmm. they have to dub... Arnold Schwarzenegger's films, and they don't use Arnold Schwarzenegger, because to Germans he sounds like a big thick farmer from, from Austria. <laughs> like an action hero. So They're othering him. I'll be back, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so anyway, yeah, the translation, so you had the count, da, 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 yeah, here we go, this is the bit. Um, so obviously Stoker's original English version has the count speaking uh, an archaic and broken form of English. So when he says, like, basically, there's a bit where the Count says, I don't get jokes, man, okay? I just don't get jokes. And in the original English, that's, uh, my heart is not attuned to mirth. I am aged and my heart is not attuned to mirth. Which in Irish became, So he's taken Count Dracula, mm -hmm. and taking him from being a Transylvanian nobleman to being a farmer from Ring, County yeah. Waterford. 
And it's little things that are thrown in there, like just ton oiger machul, that's sort of the positional speech, mm. you know, using um, abstract concepts and putting them in the real world yeah. around you, a very Irish thing. And the, the blink to fear of fura anus, that alliterative uh, yeah, there's piece. a lot of alliteration in yeah. Jones, where it's not really in Stoker's. And it slightly changes the character of Dracula as well. When you think about the perception of Dracula as somebody as not a native English speaker to make them then a native Irish speaker, it does change your perception of Dracula. And there's, there's a few references as well to, I think the English was like gloom or something. And the Irish version Sean used was Dreacht. And like Dreacht is a really positive kind of magical word, yeah. whereas gloom is so dark. So it mm. does actually, the, the book does change slightly when you read it as well. Yeah, but as you said, it kind of, it's a few liberties, and there are poetic liberties mm. that you can take in translation. Mm. You kind of sometimes have to take of course, yeah. in translation, yeah. because you can't just go word for word, or some of it's not going to make sense. Mm. We could do with the Icelandic, and the Icelandic translation of Dracula is an interesting case in point here, because the person who translated uh, Dracula into Icelandic didn't read Dracula, they just wrote something what they thought it looked like based on the cover. <laughs> And, you know, that's the other extreme. Based on Sesame Street. (laughs) (laughs) I I haven't read the original book, but I have seen Leslie Nielsen's Dracula (laughs) Dead and Loving It. I think I could give it a go, yeah. I was definitely a man, I'd say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's safe enough. I just, yeah, I said person out of politeness, but yes, definitely a man. (laughs) Yeah, so Stoker, originally, when when he wrote... Dracula. It was interesting. It was just a point that was made earlier on, like that he may have found it more commercial to set a book in London. But of course, it's only partly set in London. Mm-hmm. It's partly set in Whitby yeah. Yeah. and Transylvania. Yes, Transylvania is the point <laughs> I want to get. So, why Transylvania mm-hmm. of all places? And Derek, you have discovered some pretty interesting stuff about Transylvania in the 1890s. Yeah, so there was Transylvania, it was, it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the time, and a few years before Stoker wrote Dracula, um, a Scottish woman called Emily Gerard, who was married to a Polish soldier in the Austro-Hungarian army, who, he was stationed in Transylvania. There had been a gold rush there in the 1890s, but also uh, Emily Gerard was there. She wrote a book about all these interesting... Uh, local customs, which maybe were, were, were strange to to readers back home, so she wrote about the about the Nosferatu, about werewolves, about uh, other strange traditions. Like if uh, somebody stole something from you, you get a black hen, and you fast with the hen for nine Fridays in a row, okay. and then the thief will either die or bring back the stuff. And they call this taking the black fast. Amazing. And there's yeah. Mm. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I give that a go. I mean, it depends what they've stolen. Like, I mean, if it's only something small, you wouldn't be bothered doing all that. Yeah, but if it was your like, phone or something, you'd be, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. How dare you take my stuff? I'll, oh, I'll see you in nine weeks. <laughs> nine hungry weeks from this Friday, you are in trouble. <laughs> And there was, a, and her book about Transylvania was was fairly well received, and Stoker did did own it. And he, Stoker is maybe disappointing to some academics in that he kept really, really good records and left very little room for speculation about his motives. Mm. <laughs> like uh, you, you, you compare that to someone who just like uh, like Joyce who would have moved around and thought, well, he may, Joyce probably did read this because he read so much. So I'm definitely going to make my entire thesis on this yeah. guess. And you wrote a column um, a few years ago about 
what people thought that Dracula was based on Drach Ulla. There's yes. that kind of a wives tale going on about that. That's yeah, I mean, it's it's a cute pun. It's basically Drach Ulla, like evil blood. Yeah. Uh, sounds a bit like Dracula. Yeah. And sure wouldn't but, it be? Because his records were so clear, he actually yeah. didn't mention Drach Ulla. No, not at all. No. It's, it's, he's named after Vlad Tepes II, the second yeah. of his name, the Prince of Transylvania, whose nickname was Dracul, yeah. the dragon. Yeah. Mm. Vlad so, the Impaler, you may have heard of him. He, mm. Some nasty stuff with people. <laughs> yeah, just some <laughs> the clues in the name. <laughs> but the impaler, eh? What's that about? <laughs> oh, God, we, were, we were just talking about yeah, puns earlier. But the um, yeah, so yeah, so I think the person who came up with Drachola came up with a kick-ass bilingual pun, and they should just take credit for it instead of pretending it was yeah, some stoker thought. Yeah, I, that's what I think. <laughs> And so, but yeah, Dracula doesn't come from Dracula Irish. It's a, it's a cool pun, but that's not where he got it. He got no. it from Dracula, and he kept very good records speculating. Oh, what does Stoker think about this? You know, yeah, we, we can t- we can usually tell. No, yeah, we, 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 we read his diary. Yeah. Here's what he thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wasn't the strong silent type. No. <laughs> no, well, he was riddled with syphilis. <laughs> riddled that's, with that's probably why those letters were going crazy to and goom all the time. <laughs> <laughs> So there's um, Sean O'Carreen, as well as, as well as just doing the job of translating Dracula, he also wanted to show everyone what a brilliant writer he was. So he's kind of competing with the text in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he was translating, he wanted people to say, oh, that, that Sean O'Carreen's an amazing writer, as you do. So I mean, this, is, this is a risk of translation. He was a civil servant, wasn't he? He was a teacher, wasn't he? Yeah, for, for a period, I think he was a civil mm-hmm. servant as well. I think that maybe... He was, he was still teaching when the book came out. Yeah. It's, it, it's advertised in the Waterford News and Star at the time. They're going like, check out this brand new translation by our very own teacher yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in Ring College, Sean O'Carreen. <laughs> And he went on to translate Tolstoy from directly from Russian as well. So yeah, you know. no, that was showing off. That's really showing off. <laughs> so, oh come on, Sean. Yeah, give us all a break. And as part of that, like he wanted, I suppose, to you know show his the level of skill he had with language. And so, and one of the ways he thought, well, if I'm saying, what would a Transylvanian person? spoke Irish call a bat they wouldn't say iltog they'd use something that sounded there's an, an obscure Irish word that looks a bit like flatermouse which is the German for a bat but so we say festerluch that's almost like a reconstruction of the German for a bat in Irish mm, uh, Janine had an entry for festerluch but he had it as a dormouse so the, making this a bat was a fairly um was a, a, bit of a da- daring decision, but he. <laughs> but it could be a regionalism, there. like you know what I mean. It could yeah. be something that was a bit more common at the time. Like it's not uncommon for animals in Irish to have two names. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like, and a lot of it goes back to pre-Christian ideals of animism and the spirit within things, both animate and inanimate, and the idea that you'd have a secret name for an animal and a public name for an animal, and mm. you never refer to the animal by its secret name. Like mm. if you, there was a bear, you call it a bear. You don't call it an art. Because mm. calling it an art gives it power. And likewise, we've got Shunach and Madra Rua, mm. Marton and Cot Crown. Mm. So basically two rules. A lot of animals have two names, mm. and a lot of animals are just different types of dogs or cats. Yeah. <laughs> Fox, With different red, length red tails. dog. Yeah. Red dog. Yeah. Otter, water dog. Yeah. <laughs> Pine Martin, tree cat. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, and then the, the, the duality of the name is in, in Irish, we have um, Eeltog mm. for bat, but more commonly, and what's learned really in school is Shkihan Lahar, mm. the beautifully poetic leather wing. Which is fantastic. Would you, would you not fucking pick that? Like, yeah, yeah, no. Go for like, no, I'm going to use this very rare esoteric <laughs> word for bash that we only use in this particular part of County Waterford. Yeah. Um, but you know what? Go off. It works, man. It's, um, it's, it's beautifully well done. But yeah, the, the idea of... And it's really difficult because 
In the book, in the English version, you have a lot of characters who are not native English speakers. Mm. And in fact, there's one really funny bit in it where Jonathan Harker is telling the Count, well, your English is, is pretty good. You know, you're, don't worry, your English is good, I can understand you. And then that has translated to the verla qua, your English is pretty good. You're the verla, you're English. And of course, he's after saying, so I can imagine turning around to somebody who's just on that said, you're right, it's all right. It's all right. So there's a huge amount of poetic license and wiggle room in yeah. that, and that somebody's yeah. just come out with this, and like that little, that, that, that alliterative piece, which isn't in the English, because mm. it's not a very English thing, it's a very Irish thing. If you want to say someone is generous, you say they're flahul. You want to say they're really generous, they're feel flahul. Sure, yeah. Mm. You know, so there's so many little words like that that we just have, we use two synonyms to start with the same letter to emphasize. Yeah. Uh, and that's... I think they call it extra asperla. Yeah. <laughs> extra. Yes. You're, you're extra general. <laughs> and we're talking Berla about... is basic and Irish is extra. Berla is basic. <laughs> and we were saying there about the whole idea of having multiple names for animals and the idea that you maybe, so you might call a wolf a mock theorist who is not to annoy it, to basically mm. be polite, so please don't attack me. I'm calling you the son of the land. Son of the land. Oh, son so, of the yeah. land. Oh, son <laughs> of the land, as, as opposed to calling them, you know, a, a fuel who or something yeah. afterwards. <laughs> you wild dog bastard. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, there's, it, and it's interesting that there's one point when Dracula uses an expression like that and that he refers to wolves as the children of the night, which is almost like an Irishism for mm. wolves, except it's translated as, as by occurring as clan and Dracula's. Mm. Yeah, Clan of Darkness, the offspring of the darkness. But it also sounds like, because he talks about, oh, not been a, been a, a girl, like yeah. how lovely the music is, and Clan the Doctor sounds like it could be a family band. Mm. <laughs> it's very oh, mysterious. Isn't Clan it? of Darkness. Yeah. yeah, from Donegal. Of all the cousins of Clan of Lear, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it did seem that way. But, uh, is that what Clan had stood for? Clan of Darkness, now we have it. Planet our werewolves. Look, you heard it here first. <laughs> Who needs proof when we've got like confident assertions? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm rolling with that one. And it's interesting as well that they did translate it in the the, the censorship really took off in Ireland in the 1930s. Yeah. And obviously, this was 1933. So it was interesting to see that that the Irish government were happy to translate something that dark. Hmm. And there there are some. Um, erotic overtones in the book is what I'll call them yeah. and it was interesting that when it was given to Sean as a translation or rather he chose it as a translation that he'd like to do that Angoom suggested that they send it to a priest first and Sean also backed it up by saying we should definitely send this to a priest to see if I'm allowed <laughs> to translate it and the priest gave it the green light so there you go yeah just the three little red red marks but it's interesting that often we, when we think about Ireland's culture of uh, censorship we attribute mm. it to in a great man theory way to the personalities of two men like um, John Charles McQuaid and Eamon de Valera. And, and this is an interesting case study to test that theory because it's, it was commissioned in 1928 and it was published in 1933 just when, I suppose, uh, when were coming in for the first time. So it's, 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 it, if, if that theory is true, this predates, then this, uh, this text that predates there's it. A lot of, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of examples of stuff sliding through mm-hmm. because mm. it was Oscar Elgin. Definitely. And there was kind of a... And there's, the there's sort of two theories, like... <laughs> that either the censor didn't read or understand the Irish language versions. Never. Or... Or did. Or did. <laughs> and it's kind of like, well, fuck, I have to ban... McQuaid wants me to ban the Taylor and Anstey. Yeah. But the Irish language, they can have a bit of sex in a book as a treat. <laughs> <laughs> For their little minority language yeah, over there. Minority language, go on. She, listen, they haven't got much joy in their lives out there in Connemara. <laughs> We've now sent them to Rackar. The, the, the only thing that grows is rocks. <laughs> 
<laughs> Let's let them have a little bit of titillation in the book. And this is, this is the important thing, that this was, I mean, this, this was published for a, the largest possible audience. And when the translation of Dracula was published, it was a bestseller. Yeah, it did really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're a bestseller. I am. Uh, how many, it's how many amazing. books do you... Oh, my God, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> Got through the censor. <laughs> Just about. Just about, mm-hmm. nearly. Um, yeah, the... the there's bits in this book, right, that you would think would have no place in any book being published in Irish mm. in Ireland in the 1930s. Mm. There's a bit where the bit where they know Van Helsing knows, and Arthur and Quincy also know that Lucy Westenra is possessed by a vampire mm. because they've been trying to have sex with this girl for the rest of the book, and then all of a sudden she's sort of interested in having sex with them. And like, Devil woman, <laughs> demon, she's possessed, mm-hmm. and like that. That shit that would have been absolutely cut out of any book being published for the first time, yeah. Asa Lua. Yeah. Like, you know. Yeah, but- and it's a brave one to, to pick as well because of that and, and other reasons. But the fact that they chose this as one of the, the earlier translations to do, like, it, it's, it's real. You, you called it a tour dochus before there. That's what it was. Yeah. You know, when you think about 1930s Ireland, you wouldn't think that something like this is what was happening in the Irish language at the time. Mm-hmm. Maybe braver than we are uh, in, more con- in a more contemporary sense then than now. That's really interesting because really I would find it to be one of the major disappointments at the moment how few translations of popular novels Mm. are available in in Irish. Mm. Um, There's some really, really good original fiction coming out in Irish, some really good original non-fiction, great poetry, some of the best poetry you'll read in any language is coming out and our publishers, our small but burgeoning publishing industry Mm. is doing its very best to promote that. But translation is where it falls short, because really the big headline ones over the last number of years have been the first Harry Potter book yeah. and the first Clayton Game of Thrones book, Clayton yeah. and the Corona. Yeah. It's like, oh, wow, I'm hooked. What about the rest of the series? Mm. Um, yeah, we're um, thinking about it. Probably not. <laughs> uh, it's resources. <laughs> sure don't you all speak English anyway. <laughs> sure isn't it there on the shelves being English. <laughs> But this is, it's been ongoing tension in, in, I guess, Irish language publishing is do you support, you know, do you find kind of the next um, writer producing original texts or do you try and get something that's, that's people are, are widely familiar with? And the challenge is, they say, you can't do both. You either do one or the other when it comes to funding and really what happens is one part falls down and clearly the translations have, have fallen down. Now, there's lots of stuff in, in being translated, which is uh, kids' books being translated. That happens a lot. But when it comes to adult fiction and even non-fiction, it hasn't happened really hasn't grown in the way that you think in 1933 that we had Dracula. Yeah, and it's kind of disappointing because, like, at the time, 1933, that book had only been published 20 years before. Like, this was the Game of Thrones Mm. of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, because the first Dracula movie, the unofficial Nosferatu, that Florence Stoker actually got shut down because mm-hmm. she was hanging on a second. That's that is massive copyright infringement. <laughs> pay me. We reset. Fuck it. you. Pay me. <laughs> they they moved the setting to Leipzig, so instead of London, so it's completely different. Text. Completely different. Oh, yeah. the, no, you're thinking of Count Dracula. This is Count yeah. Orlock. <laughs> yeah. Totally different. Totally different guy. Oh my god. So yeah, when this came out, the, uh, the, the translation benefit of the fact there were a couple of cinematic um, productions of Dracula already at this stage. Yeah, we were only a few years out from Bela Lugosi's iconic mm-hmm. Count Dracula, which kind of set the tone for what Dracula looks like in our minds. What do you think of when you see Dracula? Do you think of like widow's peak haircut, slick mm. back, black cape, and all that? All of that is Lugosi because it's not Dracula in the book. Mm. Dracula in the book has a big white mustache. 
a huge white moustache. It's mentioned several times. Several times. Mm. Yeah. The moustache was really important to Stoker. We oh, and he had a moustache. <laughs> we didn't get a moustache Dracula until Gary Oldman in the 90s. Mm. Yeah. And then people were... And the, the thing about that, that was a brilliant movie, and it was an absolute smash. Like, it tripled its money. I think it cost about $70 million to make, and it made $210 million. Bram Stoker's Dracula, starring Keanu Reeves. The worst accent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mina. I am sorry I was stuck in Transylvania for so long. Um, and uh, it was uh, Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing. Mm. Yes. Really, really a good Van Helsing. And again, and a Van Helsing that's accurate to the book. Because the Van Helsing in the book is an old man. He does not look like Hugh Jackman. <laughs> he does not look like Hugh Jackman. Sadly. <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> you saying you wouldn't get up on Anthony Hopkins? <laughs> That Welsh accent. <laughs> um, anyway. <laughs> I would. Yeah, so, the, so uh, people were complaining about this one. Like, how am I supposed to believe that this mustachioed old man is Count Dracula? Because Count Dracula wears a nylon cape <laughs> and has a wig. I mean, that's, that's Count Dracula. He looks like Paddy Dracula or <laughs> Count von Count. You know, it's, uh, so Lugosi's Dracula, which would have come out in the 30s, was the start of vampire hype. Mm. And vampire hype is still going on. We're still hyped about vampires. We're still watching and reading the likes of Twilight, Twilight True yeah. Blood, all of those. Yeah. Johnny Twilight and the Vampire Gang, one of my mm. favourite movies, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so at the time, this was absolutely amazing. Oh my God, we get Dracula Oscar That's modern and culturally relevant mm. and hip and cool and I've heard of it. <gasps> and today, yeah. we get nothing. <laughs> mm. I think it's, uh, yeah, I don't know when, when the... Game of Thrones and Harry Potter were translated. They were translated kind of like that, maybe a kind of a university level readership rather than. They were, a, yeah. A Harry Potter is, is, is hard, Oscar. And it's not Osberla. Like, you know no. what I mean? For all, the, for all the issues we have, and we're going to have to get into Death of the Author and all that because yeah. there's absolutely yeah. very little J.K. Rowling's ever said I've ever agreed with. But the books are written in a way that a young reader can hop on board at the first one and they'll age as they go. Yeah. And that was not the tone taken yeah. by. It's a bit of a trend here. People who are translating books into Irish being taking, really showy. Taking liberties. Being <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, look at my Irish, though. Can I translate that book for you? I'll do better. <laughs> I'll really translate like it. it better. Because yeah. the, idea, the idea of a translator being like kind of a, a brilliant waiter who you don't even notice is serving you, uh, that not, yeah. no one really wants that. They want to be seen to be a brilliant translator. No, the translator is the over-friendly American waiter who you can't help but notice is serving you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, they want, they want a big tip. Yeah, the one who sits on your table. <laughs> hey, guys, I'll be your server. Mm-hmm. Get off my table. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's just, there's some, before we move on, there's, there are some other um, interesting points and changes in tone in the Irish translation, particularly the descriptions of Dracula maybe are almost comical in parts rather than spooky. Mm, yeah, they're definitely not as scary, and it's, it's a lot lighter as a text. It's, it's much word heavier, but the tone is lighter, and definitely Dracula is much darker as Berla than he is as Like in as it's kind of like, ah, a bit spooky, whereas as you're like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> this was Ireland in the late 20s, early yeah. 30s. We didn't need dark. <laughs> we needed a bit of light. You want scary? Look outside the door. Yeah. <laughs> We're in the middle of an economic war we cannot win. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, par- parts of um, parts of Dracula, Daphne Kybird thinks that parts of Dracula are based on the famine because um, Stoker's parents were alive during the famine and obviously saw absolutely horrific things happen and that he took some of the horror, that generational trauma from his parents onto the page in Dracula. So that's really interesting as well, the fact that you can take, well, Kybert thinks you can take that trauma and the, the, the actual horror into the book like that. It's mm. fascinating. It was generational. Like It was something mm. that would have, at the time when Stoker was writing it, it's something that would have been relatively novel to English readers, the mm. bulk of his readers and international readers. But back at home in Dublin, like a little something for the lads. You remember this, you yeah. remember this horror. Yeah, and his mother lived through cholera horror. as well. So yeah. like lots of horror all over the place in Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> How surprising. Yeah. And he made Transylvania look like a shithole. <laughs> It was Clontarf. It's <laughs> impressive. It was Clontarf all along. <laughs> yeah. It's true. I suppose people who experience horror don't need to read about it. And mm. it's, uh, that's just an issue. And this is one of the things Stoker did. Um, one of the reasons there have been, obviously, vampire novels before, uh, before Dracula, and such as, obviously, Camilla by Sheridan de Fanu, who was one of Stoker's earlier bosses. But one of the things that, that was noticed at the time in the early reviews of Dracula was how he took it away from its foreign setting or away from its being set away in the past, put things right in the present day and used the actual like language of countenance notes and newspaper reports and telegrams and shipping uh, and shipping shipping texts as well. So it made it feel very real. It was like a, like a news report and that's what terrified people, the idea that a vampire wasn't something too far away. It mm. starts off in Transylvania, but then it comes right home. Yeah, the, the modernism of Dracula is brilliant. Mm. Like just mm. as a piece, English, Irish, doesn't matter. The way it's structured, it's the structure is incredible. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's it's one of the best books you'll ever read for that mm. alone. The idea of how to put together somewhat of it, like almost like an. You ever read ever read one of those articles? It's like an oral history of mm. Mm. what you're doing is you're getting perspectives right the way through it, mm. and it's brilliant and it tells the story seamlessly, flawlessly right the way through it. Even though you're reading Jonathan Harker's letters to Mina, Jonathan Harker's diary, Mina Harker's diary telegrams from Abraham Van Helsing to Arthur mm. Holmwood. Um, it's brilliant. And as you say, shipping reports, the reports of the, the asylum at Bedlam and mm. things like that. Mm. It's just, it's beautifully done that when you put it together, I mean, I haven't seen anything do it. It's in lots of, lots of tried. Mm. It's a really, really good book if you're into kind of zombies. Who's into zombies? What, one or two people? What? Mm. We've got a room full of people into vampires and three so, people into zombies. It might be a zombie talk on after this. Oh, sure. is there a zombie talk? <laughs> Zombies aren't sexy. That, that is true. Yeah, that, that is, is true. true. <laughs> Zombies are no Anthony Hopkins. I will tell you that. Um, yeah, but there, there's anyway, no there's sense, a really there's good there's sense of a zombie moving into a high school. <laughs> yeah, for some there reason. Oh. Zombie. it's on Netflix. Oh, yeah? It's crap. Yeah. Um, the, so there's a book called World War Z, which I frankly refuse to refer to as World War Z because it's called Z. That's not what it's called. <laughs> World War Z, and it's put together like an oral history. Like we've just won the war with the zombies, and this is how it's done. And it's a collection of newspaper reports, emails, and interviews with people. And it's it's beautifully put together. But you can see, like that's very clearly influenced mm. by Bram Stoker's Dracula, the first horror author to say, "Well, how do I make this shit extra scary?" Will Orson Welles it and make it feel like it can really happen? Of course, Welles did it with War of the Worlds, mm. which was a H.G. Wells book, and the book is okay. It's fun to read. It's enjoyable. But when Welles got it to create a radio play, 
he did it like a series of news reports. We interrupt mm. this ballroom dancing to tell you the Martians have landed. Mm. Um, now, the impact of that has been overstated. You'll read stories about people really believed it and they panicked and they shot each other and they... No, there were one or two misunderstandings but that, that were quickly cleared up with a phone call to the radio station. <laughs> it's like, have the Martians landed? No, it's a play, love. <laughs> oh, okay, thanks, just checking. But... Again, this came out only, uh, like, Wells would have been not quite a contemporary of, of, of Stoker. They would have overlapped somewhat. But Wells being um, raised, at least in London as well, would have definitely experienced Dracula as a popular novel at the time and seen that this is actually something that I can rip off wholesale mm. and make serious mm. coin. i to go for this. <laughs> yeah. And it is, and because of suppose some people have seen Dracula films, and the, it came out of copyright altogether in 1962, and that's when you find a lot of the, that's the year the Monster Mash was released, actually, was when it came out of copy, <laughs> fully came out of copyright, and that's when you have all the, the real horror, hammer horror ones that we're mostly familiar with, and that's why, even though everyone has heard of Dracula, people are often surprised by the text, and they read it for the first time. He's got a moustache. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and Where's find, the white paint? And you find, say, this, and, and a lot of those films don't include some of the minor characters who people actually do really, really like when they actually read the book. And one of the theories about, you know... Like Renfield. Yeah. He's exactly. my favourite. He's mm. brilliant. Everyone loves Renfield. He's glad. It's one of the theories that is out there. People have speculated about Stoker's kind of political views and, and Ireland was obviously an interesting place at the time. We were, a lot of mad stuff going on, but, I mean... We can't read his mind. Some stuff he did write, some stuff he didn't write, but he did. The English characters are probably a little bit less brave and a little bit less uh, uh, impressive than some of the international characters in this I book. Think, I think the term is milk toast. <laughs> yeah. They're just completely and totally milk toast. And then the heroes of the book are undoubtedly the Yank and the Dutchman. Mm. Mm-hmm. The American Quincy and the Dutchman Abraham van Helsing are the only ones who turn up with a calm head and, like, you know, take off, take out a sword and lop off Lucy's head. Yeah. The English are crying. Oh, Shove no, a load of garlic oh, no. into it. <laughs> She's a vampire. What are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Sorted, lads. That's how we do it in Amsterdam, baby. <laughs> <laughs> like lobbing off the head of a tulip. <laughs> oh, no, that, that can cause an economic crisis. <laughs> yeah, and of course, the American, the American being the hero, the, the sacrifice that... that uh, sorry, I don't mean to spoil the book, but it's over 100 years mm. old. Okay, so... The, the, the sacrificial heroism of Quincy towards the end and mm. him being honoured in the, the, the arrival of a child that they'll nail Quincy who might be a vampire. It's very Hollywood film, isn't it, towards oh, the end, totally, the sacrificial yeah. thing where it's like, I will take it. Yeah. Mm. You don't have to. No, it's fine. No, we can, we can survive. Okay, go off. Yeah, okay, no problem. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, man. Sound. Really appreciate it. Another martyr for old Ireland. <laughs> But yeah, so uh, I don't know if Stoker deliberately wrote the English characters to be... To, because to be fair, Mina Harker's not a weak character. Mm. She's True. The English men are weak. Oh. In the book. That's not a general... <laughs> that's not a general statement uh, or an endorsement or anything like sort that. Sort of like a soccer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, English women. Kick ass. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, look, brilliant book. Mm. Absolutely fantastic. I mean, I suppose... So when, yeah, the, just the uh, final point is I, I want to say before we, a, we open up, ask for questions is when the book was pub- commissioned in 1928, published in 1933, new government, was it a new attitude to Irish language policy at that stage? 
I think it was it was hopeful. That's what I would say about the translation. It was hopeful, and I think it was a good start to translating. Like it wasn't the first, but it was one of the beginning fund that that Blythe gave. I, I read a great uh, headline that the Irish Times had a few years ago about the translation being like the same uh, minister that slashed the pension, put all this money in towards Irish language books. I was like, oh my god! Like as if he stole the money off the pensioners to translate Dracula. Anyway, that was hopeful. That's what I would call that. Maybe he did. <laughs> Maybe. Directly. We'll have to see if there's a balance. Wasn't he balance. right? Wasn't he right? <laughs> we took, took sixpence off each pension and got a good book out of it. Um, it was, it, and it hadn't been dampened down by cultural inertia at that stage. Yes. Mm. Like, there was the Free State and the early Irish Republic. It was a weird mix of this bright blue horizon and hope, and we can build a country for all, for the future. And on the other side of the coin, is it not just easier if we keep the exact same civil servants in? Yeah, and also and a also, certain level of steady on there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you have this dichotomy, this duality that exists in the free state as to, you know, we've got the ambition of mm. the likes of Pierce and Collins and their legacy. And then the fact that we literally didn't change a thing. We yeah. changed the uniforms and put a few signs up and all the cultural institutions remained half of them still had royal in the mm. title like mm. you know what I mean so we changed as little as possible while being overtly ambitious mm. and declaring ourselves to be a nation in, in the world mm. which we did really well we punched well above our weight from 1919 until the, the outbreak of the second world war like we were we led the league of nations mm. we were we were brokers in peace deals throughout the world we were a respected partner at the international level our neutrality was respected in in the emergency in world war ii we were really punching above our weight and we were very well respected liter in the literary sense as well so it makes sense that this would be chosen as one of the books as well as kind of a showcase of ireland being a literary destination as well yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that, like, among the books that were chosen, a lot of them were by foreign writers, the likes mm. of Conrad and Haggard mm. and all that. But, I mean, Bram Stoker was an Irish writer. Mm. And it was a hit. It was an absolute smash hit. And, yeah, and you still see the, the Irish trend. This is still fairly well available. Mm. I mean, maybe the... I guess the Haggard one hasn't, hasn't survived to the same extent. There's the, the Irish language one, I only found out that about recently. It's not, it's not as good. <laughs> well, it, it isn't as good. But, I mean, I, I, I kept hearing the phrase, she who must be obeyed, and I didn't realise it was a name of a novel. And I only found that out when I was researching this, so mm. every day's a school day. But anyway... It's the way it's taught. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could have learned coding instead. I know it's terrible. <laughs> so, so, first of all, thank you so much all for coming thank today, you. and uh, and thank you so much for for us being invited here and given a chance to do this again. I missed podcasting so much, but yeah, but I always love to know if we left some time to make sure because I'm sure some of you have some questions. Hello, hi. A friend of mine put forward the theory, and I think it's got a bit, little bit of weight to it that. Uh, Stoker was the most influential author of his era just by virtue of popularizing vampires. So we're not seeing like the Ulysses equivalent of Twilight and stuff like that. So <laughs> what do you guys think of this not, not yet. assertion? <laughs> yeah, I mean, of his generation, probably of the previous generation, there's Mary Shelley. Mm. But yeah, definitely Mary Shelley. I mean, Stoker... So, by virtue of a couple of things, it's a rip-roaring horror novel mm. that was easily adaptable to film because of the way it's structured and the way that everything is... And there's not a lot of... So, interestingly, because Dracula is done in that way of diaries and letters and telegrams and things like that, there's not a lot of 
I'm in shit here, he no, thought. there's very little narrative. There's no internal yeah. monologues and very little narrative, <laughs> mm. so it's mm. easy to translate for the screen. And so immediately, it was easy to translate, therefore, for silent movies. So it was an, an immediate smash hit then in cinema, even pre-talkies. And because of that, and then, of course, when it went out of copyright, yeah, so, I mean, when things go out of copyright, it's kind of funny, you can see, every couple of years, there's another Robin Hood reboot. Every couple of years. <laughs> because they don't have to pay the original author of Robin Hood. And likewise, King Arthur. There's a load of really bad King Arthur films. There's one or two good ones, but mostly really, really bad. But every couple of years, you get a reboot of King Arthur. There's one with Charlie Hunnam. A few years before that, it was Clive Owen. And it's because they don't have to pay that. And in the 1960s, that's what happened. <laughs> this went out of copyright. Mm. And they said, right, well, vampires are scary. And uh, as somebody who didn't invent vampires, but definitely who popularized them, no stoker. No vampires. Mm. Quite simple. I don't know if you can be more influential yeah. than that. Yeah, there was, he was the first person to connect vampires and bats. And thinks the vampire bat species have been identified in South America, but no one ever thought, what if we have a vampire who turns mm. into a bat? <laughs> so, yes, and, and some of, those, some of the, the innovations he um, brought in have definitely caught on. And, but, he, again, he had researched as well, and a lot of the vampire tropes were, were, were existing. He, he just synthesized them in an attractive and accessible way. And we're still talking about Dracula, we're still talking about bats, we're still talking about vampires, so I think that's, mm -hmm. that's the winning combination. If you've still got this, how many years later, then you're, you're owning the vampire section, really. Mm -hmm. Any questions? Hello. Um, you mentioned earlier that like, the practice of translating like, contemporary novels has kind of fallen away. What kind of 21st century novels or non-fiction books would you guys like to see translated into Irish? That's a good question. Mm -hmm. Good question. Give me trash. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Give me pure trash, please. That's what I want. I, we we definitely I'm, I'm have the translators that. for that. I know we get the translators <laughs> for it. But the problem is, right, that the translators will come, they'll take the trashy novels that I like to read yeah. and they'll turn them into literary works of genius. Yeah. For God's sake. No, um, I'm kind of, a, I'm always ashamed when the conversation comes because I don't read a lot in Irish. Like, I speak mm. Irish all the time. That's, that's a big problem for yeah. people who speak Irish is that the books that are out there, some of them are really excellent, but there aren't enough of them. That's yeah. our big issue. And there's like a, a small plethora of good books, but we don't have many sci-fis, Ascaidiga. No. We don't have a lot of horror, Ascaidiga. No. We don't have a lot of the genres haven't been fulfilled, really. There was a book, book that came out a couple of years ago. It's one of the best books I've read, English or Irish, Taringrucht. Oh, yeah. It's brilliant. Really yeah. But it's detective fiction. <gasps> it's like a Da Vinci Code, Ascaidiga. Mm. Give me that. Yeah. yeah. Give, me that. Give me Elmore Leonard. Give me John Grisham. Give me Michael Connolly. Yeah. James Patterson. James Patterson and all the people who actually write the books for James <laughs> Patterson. Like Bill Clinton. Oh, Bill Clinton, yeah, Bill Clinton, yeah. I'll read all of that, like, but the problem is that people are going like, oh, what is the next massive, big literary um, yeah. odyssey that we can translate into? into yeah. I don't. Me, Jilly Cooper. Mm. Yeah. I don't care, give me trash. Yeah. That's what I would really like to see, just some pure, mm. some pure trash. Yeah, there, there probably are 50 <laughs> words for different shades of grey in Irish as well. Well, I was going to say, if there was anything that was going to be translated well, it's got to be 50 shades of grey in, in various different county. <laughs> Cover all bases. Could you imagine it? Do, Leah, Dove, Leah, Bon, Leah. Yeah, it goes on. <laughs> yeah. Fawn and Chin, Ursa Christ or Leah. <laughs> Yeah, what's I think her name? It, Anastasia. It, it, what's her name? Anastasia. What? I never read it. Steel. Steel. Ah, yeah. modern perverts. <laughs> modern Irishship. Stosh. Stosh Stone. <laughs> Stosh Anastasia Steel. Stosh Stone. Yeah, I'd be the same as you, Pather. 
I read some books in Irish. The latest one that I read that was really good wasn't a translation. The one that Taig, uh, Fata Fata, Taig Kintan Oh, uh, Madame Lazar. Madame Lazar is really good. If, if anybody's looking for a good book, Oscar Edgar, Madame Lazar is excellent. But we need more because I wanted another one. I, I hope he's going to read like a, or write a sequel or a prequel Bajer. Uh, um, we, need, we need more of that that's just a really good story. I don't yeah. necessarily need amazing translations. I just want a really good story. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And it's like the, there's, we've fallen into this weird little niche for Irish language publishing where it's kind of like, I remember years ago picking up um, Donald McSheehig's book, you know, Kenyana mm. Diamahado. Donald, Donald McSheehig is a, um, a fisherman and adventurer from um, Corcoghina. I remember I bought his book having met him and I went, to, and I went into the bookshop to buy it and, and Peggy from the bookshop just said, that's a great book. You'll need a dictionary reading it. <laughs> You'll need a thesaurus. He writes in such beautiful, difficult Irish. <laughs> I was like, it's great. It is a great book. It's fantastic. But occasionally you just want to pick up a book that is not going to be a homework exercise. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. In reading it. And, like, and people ask me, like, well, I mean, what do you read in English? And sure, some people read exclusively Joyce mm. or literary fiction. They only read Murakami or mm. um, David... Um, What's it, Mitchell? Mm. You know, they only read the, the most esoteric books. Some people are like me. I read detective novels. Trash. And I catch the bad guy at the end. <laughs> yeah. Simple. Yeah. <laughs> Trash. But even if the, if, the, if the actual project of translating was a way of recognizing some popular Irish, uh, English language work in Irish, like say, to translate some Marian Keys, like that, as a, a way of saying to re- mm. revisiting this text that deserves a second look and allowing a translator to interrogate the Irishisms in it and how they're yeah. replicating the language, that would be very interesting. Mm. And I wish the decision wasn't, it has to be a translation mm-hmm. at the cost of an original book because we should have enough. Well, just double the budget. Yeah, we need more money then. Just if we can't money, do both, yeah. we need yeah. more money because that's what it comes down to in decision rooms as oh well if we translate this if we pay somebody to translate this then we can't pay this author to write an original story that's not good enough no because they don't have that conversation in English no they don't like oh my god if we translate the Henning Mankell books we can't pay yeah you know uh, Ruth Rendell to write mm. more murder mysteries of course you can mm. of course you can mm. but I suppose the difficulty is with minority languages it's not as commercial no but I mean I just have a feeling that it would be slightly more commercial if stuff that was well loved and famous in English was more readily available in Irish. I know I'd buy books mm. like that where I don't mm. buy a lot of Skylga at the moment. Mm. Yeah, there, there has to be a space between the children's books and the kind of university level. Yeah, because the children's books are amazing. Books. Yeah. The children's books are incredible, but there's a gap. That's what I want. Young, young adult fiction, Oscailga. Yeah. <laughs> Charmaine. For yourself. For me, 100%. <laughs> Finally catch up on the Twilight uh, file. <laughs> it's very good. Do you have any more questions? <laughs> Don't be shy. How's it going? Um, Just uh, having not read the translation, I'd just be really curious. um, You talked earlier about how the way they've translated what Dracula says in his kind of archaic English kind of changes the character. And I'd be really interested to hear about Van Helsing in that kind of regard, because he has this kind of broken English, Mm. kind of like, if not half Dutch, half English kind of thing. And just how that kind of comes across, because it seems like you get a lot of creative license trying to translate that kind of like idiosyncratic stuff mm. and how that kind of worked out. Mm. So, mm. question? Thanks. Yeah, so this is, this, I've just found the, the good page as of this. Oh, well, so, yeah, right up. Um, this is a good page. Yeah, so uh, in the original, uh, as we say, Van Helsing speaks, again, 
Bro, Stoker was a good writer. Like, Elmore Leonard, uh, one of my favourite writers, has these, like, 11 tips for good writing, and one of them is never write accents. Mm. Don't write the accent. Just write the words that the person is saying and let the reader have the accent in their head. And that's what Stoker did. So he uses kind of either outdated or funny word choice or maybe broken sentences, but he doesn't, like, again, it's not I want to fuck your blood or anything like that. But <laughs> for Professor Van Helsing... Morain i madam mean. Tone amanly. Ach ni eight me fanacht. Kaitos of a rimpy against Stashin the Hyoin. Like, Morainy. Tone amanly. Again, he's gone with a level of fluency, which is just more natural to the Irish reader. It's more mm. natural to the Irish speaker. And it changes my interpretation, personally speaking, of the likes of Count Dracula and Van Helsing from funny foreigners to really learned individuals mm. who come across as just that little bit more intelligent and, and well-read, which is a change because mm. in the original book, they definitely do come up with like, funny stereotypes of these mad foreigners with strange accents. Yeah, you'd wonder, is that like a sign of a good translation or a bad translation? Because it does change the character so much that... Is it Sean O'Curry and Sean off as Irish so much that it takes away from the character that Stoker actually wrote? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is, but mm. it's kind of okay because it's fun to read. Mm. And, yeah, it's great to read. And it doesn't make the characters bad or any more hackneyed or mm. less believable. But yeah, it's, they're definitely different. Like, mm. you're not dealing with this guy. There's nothing lost in translation in this book, whereas mm. it's kind of a key part of Stoker's original in the English that there are confusions, you know, um, and Jonathan Harker is summoned to go to uh, Count Dracula's has to, to sell him a bit of property in Whitby and to act as a land agent. And, of course, he turns up and Count Dracula thinks, ah, he has come willingly. He will be my slave, my <laughs> servant forever. He will be a slave to darkness. Whereas Harker's thinking, no, this is just good customer service. <laughs> so that, that cultural miscommunication is key in Dracula. And it's, not, it's just not there in this one because no. they're speaking exactly the same language mm. at the same level to each other. Yeah. But it's still so much fun. Do you have any more questions? Go on. Go on, go on. Okay. It's a neighbor here, Jay. Okay. Well, <laughs> we've said literally all there is to be said about... Yeah. The end. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you. Thank you all so much for coming along today. And I've made this feel very welcome. And by all means, you can, you can get this book in, in, in not just figures. You can ship a letter. Ship a letter, yeah. yeah. And it's, 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 it's actually available and we recommend it. And... And thank you, Nisha, and Bramstoker yeah. Festival. Thanks for to all the festival. Listen, there's, yeah. there's a huge amount on for the weekend. Check out the rest of the Bramstoker Festival, particular personal highlights. Donald Fallon is doing a walking tour tomorrow, three o'clock. Is there still space on that one? Or? No, they're all Ah, oh, uh, fuck it. There you go. Second uh, book it, Book it earlier next year, lads. <laughs> So this podcast will be available on the internet. No point telling you, you're here. <laughs> but tell your friends who couldn't get tickets yes. so they can listen back on the RT Culture website. So. If you want to hear your own questions back again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, it's a song. It's a song for me. And it's a song, Wimsha. It's a song.